This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. open that. Um, and uh, as Silas said, turn to Luke 8 if you weren't already there. Thanks, Silas. And this is going to be uh, verse 40 through 56. And um, so I'll point, uh, I'll bring your attention to certain verses. And if you could just look down, maybe even mark, if you even mark in your Bible. Um, someone sent me a, a text this week um, that she had found um, from someone else, uh, I think it was tweeted out by someone, and it says, uh, kind of feeling like the earth just sent us all to our rooms to think about what we've done. And um, if you think about that as a time out and us having to have time to think and to wait, I think that um, in the kingdom of God, uh, we um, who are believers, we, we know that uh, waiting is a part of being in the kingdom. And um, waiting was one of the distinctive virtues of the Jewish people. Um, Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. And if you think about where we are right now, as we wait, um, sitting in our rooms, apart from each other, um, Think about Psalm 37, 7, where this Hebrew worshiper wrote this song, Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him, and do not fret. Uh, waiting is a distinctive virtue of being in the kingdom of God, because the Jews believed that God was a God who was going to come and a God who would save, and so they waited for that God. They believed that history was moving somewhere and that um, there was something to wait for, a God who was coming. And so Psalm 25, 5 says, You are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. And um, this story, like our story right now, is um, waiting for God in the midst of a medical calamity, in two different medical calamities. This um, destitute widow, on the one hand, it was totally isolated, um, who was very poor, um, who was kind of one of the outcasts of the city of Capernaum. You have her on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you have Jairus, who was a uh, very prestigious man. He was a father. Uh, he had a family. Uh, his daughter is about to die, and, and they're both waiting in uh, these medical calamities. The woman had to wait 12 years. Uh, the father had to wait. You know, we don't know how, how long, but probably while Jesus was talking to the woman, it was at least 12 minutes or so. So, uh, those, imagine how excruciating those 12 minutes would have been. But 
in both cases, you have these two people in the kingdom of God, and they're waiting. And um, the only way they could wait is because they had hope in this king who was coming. And they knew the kind of king they were waiting for, and so that gave them the power and the courage to wait. So I want to look at uh, these two characters. And I'll start with a woman, even though the story is built like a sandwich, uh, which often the gospel writers do, where you have the the story of the, the father at the beginning and the end, in the middle of the sandwich you have the, the story of the woman. And uh, the story of the father somewhat interprets the story of the woman. So um, there was a woman, this is verse 43, uh, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and spent all her living on physicians. So uh, I think we're supposed to imagine the... Um, plight of this woman. At some point in her life, um, this bleeding started that never never ended. She couldn't control it. And because of that, uh, in the Jewish law, she would have been considered unclean. And uh, nobody could go near her. So imagine the situation we're in with social distancing, but in this case, you're the only one who uh, is being distanced from. I was walking around today, and people kind of move you know, six feet away from you when you're walking. And imagine that happening to you all the time, and you're the only one that that's being done to. Uh, that's what's going on with this woman. And if you notice just um, in the story, the shame, you see these details that show the, the shame that she felt. Um, only in a crowd was she willing to approach Jesus because she was so ashamed of herself. So she would only do this in a She wouldn't have come up to him uh, on a street by herself. Uh, she only would come from behind. Notice she comes up from behind because she doesn't want to face him. She doesn't want to be noticed. And then even then, it's only the very fringe of his garment that she's touching. So just think about what that means psychologically, all that is behind that. And this isolation that she felt was so huge that um, even to come out of it and to move into uh, social life, back into the, the, the world of Capernaum, uh, the city where she was from, even doing that was terrifying to her. So in verse 47, uh, you see that. It says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she wanted to be hidden, like Eve, you know, behind the fig leaves. When she saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. So that's how racked she is with, um, with shame and with feeling like she's an outsider or that crazy. And uh, we're just feeling a little bit of that with the isolation that, um, that many of us are feeling. You know, I'm, I'm more of an extrovert. And so um, at times I felt this week, you know, life, life as we know it is over, that um, we're in such a strange position. It's, it's only been a week, but, you know, um, not seeing people, not being able to eat with people um, outside of your your family or the people who live right with you, uh, not playing games with people, not getting to play basketball. Um, you know, these things just, uh, they, that isolation makes you feel like it, it almost starts to create a sense of shame. Uh, not exactly where the woman was, but, but beginning to feel that way a little bit. And um, a friend of mine, an co old college friend, Andrew Smith, uh, he, he ran into my, my wife Margie at Harris Teeter, and uh, he, he looked at her and he said, I just... So I miss hugging people so much. And I don't really personally miss that a whole lot. That's one of the nice things for me. Um, Austin probably 
This is a little more nicer. I, I'm an extrovert, but I don't like to hug that much. But, you know, imagine uh, this woman uh, receiving that first touch from Christ, the, um, the, the, the man who was, who was willing to, to touch her um, for the first time. And imagine hearing you called daughter, which was him embracing her into the kingdom people, that you're a daughter of, of Abraham. You're a daughter of God. And then receiving this compliment, your faith has made you well. And then receiving this word shalom, peace, which is probably a fragment from the Aaronic blessing. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. So you can just imagine the, the shockwaves that went through her body, how you know, electrifying that would be. And, and I would say that uh, right now as we wait, that's, that is what we're waiting for, is that, that moment of touching the body of Christ again. And um, whether it's four more weeks from now, or hopefully not four months, but however long it's going to be, um, there is a point on that horizon line where we're going to have that touch again. And uh, it's theologically not precise, but I would be willing to call it even a second coming in a way, because um, you know, if the body of Christ, if the people of God are his truly what he calls his body, physical body, um, then right now we miss the body, and we can't wait to get back to Calvary, Moravian, or our small groups or the prayer meeting or Bible studies or just meeting with other people, and it'll be like a second coming in a way, returning to Christ again. And in the, in the exile, the Jews missed each other so much. They missed worship so much, the way that I miss all of you, and I'm sure you miss each other. Um, the, the one of the psalmists compared it to a, like a dog that was panting. His tongue is whose tongue is out, um, Psalm 42, 1, as a deer thirsts for flowing streams, so my soul longs for God. And uh, it goes on to say that what he longed for, um, the psalmist, what they would have considered like their great vacation, was uh, to go with the throng, to go with the throng to the house of God. So that's a, the festival marching to the temple with glad, with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. So I just want to encourage you to wait for that right now. And um, like this woman that was waiting so patiently for all those years, uh, that one day we will touch the body of Christ again. Um, and that will bring this immediate healing. It says in verse 44, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. It was, it was instant, the second that he touched her. So... Um, I can't wait for that moment where, once again, uh, we enter into that, that space and are with each other. So that's the woman. The father is a totally different kind of character. Um, he would have been maybe one of the most, if not the most, respected men in town. So look at verse 41. Uh, it says, There came a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. So um, as uh, Silas read in the Jesus story of the Bible, it portrayed that so well, how desperate he is. And uh, he, he, again, he is so respected, but here he is uh, bowing down to perhaps the most ridiculed man in town. If you go back and read the way that Jesus has been treated, especially by the authorities in Capernaum, for Jairus to do this is uh, absolutely humiliating. And um, the reason that he was willing to go that low is because it says in verse 42, 
Uh, he had this only daughter. This is his only child, a 12-year-old girl, and she's dying. And um, just having a child, uh, I know what it's like for a child to be very sick, um, to be very unwell. And uh, when you're in a place like that, you'll do anything. You'll spend anything. Uh, you would embarrass yourself in public if you need to. Uh, you, would, you don't have the energy to keep up appearances. You know, you're willing to forfeit all respect and to lose face. And um, you can just imagine that as he goes with such hope uh, to see his daughter with Jesus, suddenly there's this 12, this however long, 12 minutes interruption with this woman. And um, he's waiting there and Jesus stops. This is the most remarkable part of the story. He stops and is willing to have this conversation with this outcast, um, nobody. And you can imagine um, how frustrated Jairus must have been in that moment. Uh, there's not an ER in the world, there's no triage in the world where they would stop uh, for uh, this woman and take her first and then wait for the dying girl. This woman has had a chronic issue for 12 years. The girl is She's dying. It's acute. And yet, um, that's what Jesus does. He stops to talk to the woman, and he puts the important man on hold. One commentary called it divine malpractice. But that's not even uh, the end of it. Um, imagine the moment where, in the middle of the conversation with a woman that he considers irrelevant, um, this guy comes up, running up one of his servants, and says, uh, your daughter is dead. You know, at that moment... Um, I think I would have gone just, I would have gone ballistic. I would have been so angry. Uh, I would have thought to myself, this was this was preventable. Uh, if only you had moved faster. You know how foolish, how incompetent, how irresponsible for you to do this. I mean, we think those things about God, don't we? We um, we blame God. We we blame the leaders of the world. Even right now, we're thinking, you know, why didn't we hear about this earlier? Uh, why were we unprepared as a nation? Why has this thing spread like it has? It seems so preventable in so many ways, and um, we get so frustrated with this. But just think about Jairus. It seems like in the story, he's just sitting there waiting. He's just waiting for this. Um, he's just believing in the words of Jesus, where Jesus immediately turns to him as if to ward off the, the, the voices of, of accusation and anger and anxiety, and he says, don't fear, Jairus. It's like he says, like, look, me, look at me in the face. Don't, do not fear. Only believe, and all will be well. Do not fear. Only believe. All will be well. And it seems that to, to Jesus, and I think Jairus must have known this in some way, that death and uh, chronic bleeding were equivalent that they were equally dwarfed by his power, that he had um, no um, difference at all in his ability to um, heal either one of these things. You know, he treats death in the story like a harmless little kitten. You know, he doesn't uh, roll up his sleeves or, like, you know, do the He-Man thing, if you've seen that, by the power of Grayskull. You know, like, I'm going to call down all this power. Um, he doesn't do uh, what... Leah or, or Ray does in Star Wars when they have to, you know, almost die themselves, like giving birth to bring someone back to life. It's amazing how, how there's no incantation, um, there's no shouting, there's nothing. He just simply 
it seems like he just bent down, uh, knelt down next to the little girl. I thought the, again, the Jesus Storybook Bible painted that masterfully. Like he just bends down, touches her little hand, and says, time to get up, honey. Um, and you, you just see in that um, the, the omnipotence of this man. And that's what Jairus had to believe when he said, do not fear, only believe, all will be well. And I think that the point is, why would you have to hurry someone uh, who is that powerful and that caring? And uh, it's, it's astonishing the way that he, um, he cares so much for the woman that he's willing to be uh, mocked, essentially, by Peter, and probably others as well. You can see Peter, Peter's irritation in verse 45, where he's probably thinking, what are you doing talking to her when he's so important? And, and she's been bleeding 12 years, and this girl's dying. He says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. How in the world are we supposed to know who touched you? Verse 45. That's when Jesus says, who touched me? And he cares so much for the woman that he's willing to bear that. He's willing to bear um, all the, the shame and the scorn that would have been poured on him at that moment in that crowd. That's how, that's how much in solidarity with the woman he is. And in the same way uh, with Jairus, um, he cares so much for Jairus that uh, in verse 53 you see how Jesus bears the um, mockery of these so-called mourners, these professional mourners, where it says they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. And, um, and so, you know, what I want to finally say, while Austin, as Austin takes us to the, the supper, is just that um, Jesus is a king that is so powerful and he cares so much that we can wait for him. And he knows uh, how much we want to be with each other. He knows what's happening with the, the medical equipment and he knows what's happening with lost jobs and, and small businesses. He knows all these things and he's just, he says, uh, you know, do not fear. Believe in my power. Believe in my care for you, um, my solidarity with you, and all will be well. And uh, this is his ultimate sign, I think, of his, of his care for us. Um, it's amazing to me that this passage was scheduled yeah, long ago. Yeah. And I didn't even, I mean, uh, Lucy, our daughter, this is her favorite Bible story. I don't really know why, but she's always loved Jairus' daughter. Uh, so... I can think about the story, but I didn't even think about how much it relates to the, the timing piece mm -hmm. and how much it relates to the question, why is God not dealing with this right now? Why is he not just, why does he allow these things to happen? And it, it just shows that we, you know, like in the meta narrative, we don't know, know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So every week, if you come to Salem Prez, we do the Lord's Supper, so it, in, in a lot of ways, it, it almost feels naked for us to not mm -hmm. uh, do that right away. And um, I think there are lots of good reasons for churches to not always do it every week, but we really love doing it every week, and we, we think that that is what, um, what Jesus intended. And I, we're just taking this as an opportunity to share why we think that's important every week until we can do it again. And um, a couple things came to mind that relate to this passage. Um, 
the first is just to say that um, I was thinking about the fact that the woman would have been ritually unclean. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about what you said about the ironic blessing, or we call it the Baroka sometimes at church, that this woman who would have been unclean in Jewish culture, not welcome at a table. Mm -hmm. uh, she wouldn't even been welcome in the village. Mm -hmm. Receives what is essentially this royal decree that you are part of, you're a citizen of the king's kingdom. What a, that's so powerful. And I think about that that's really what the table is, is that it is, it is the king inviting us to a banquet feast that he himself uh, is serving himself as the as the meal. Mm. I'm going to pause real quick because our Instagram feed stopped and then I'll continue. But the other thing I want to say is that uh, Ben and I often talk about that well, I don't often talk about it. I learned this from Ben when I interned under Ben. Um, that really having the supper at the end of the sermon changes the way we preach. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that shapes you all. And we don't usually mention this explicitly, but it's a good opportunity to. Because it's hard to preach a whole sermon where you're saying, you better do this and you better do that. You better get out there and do these things and you better live these ways and then end by saying and this is how God has done it all for you and so uh, I hope that as you uh, reflect on hearing preaching every week you hear God's word from you what he's telling you is I want to reshape you into the way I designed you uh, but I'm going to do that work and I'm going to do that work through this supper and so for us, we believe in what we call sacraments. Ben talked about it last week, which is baptism and the Lord's table. And there's lots of things that Christians do, like pray and read the Bible and have weddings and funerals and worship services. But there's something unique about these two things that the historic church has said. Something more happens here mm -hmm. where the Holy Spirit actually uh, brings grace into you in a mysterious way. Not as an infusion, not like an injection, but in some way you're getting as close as you ever will to the grace of God through these things. And so for us that begins with baptism and then is renewed over and over and over and over again by the table. So normally we would say that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he gave thanks to his Father for it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And then we would take the cup, and I love that we pour from the pitcher into the cup, because it shows us like that Christ's blood was actually poured out. It was spewed out of his body, a gift, this horrific gift out of him as this way of saying, I love you so much that I want you to be reconciled to me, and I will give the ultimate sacrifice to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you could pray for yeah. us, and then I'll...